Welcome to the Astroholic Explains, exploring the universe one question at a time with Dr. Alfredo and Chris Carpinetti. Welcome to the final episode of the Astroholic Explains Season 3! Dun dun dun! That was a bit dramatic. I don't know. It's uh... da 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 da! It's not more of a celebratory da, noise. Da, 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 da. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. no, it's just that it's it's happy that we had done another season, but it's sad that the season is over. When did we Our... start season three? I can't remember now. In um, May. Was it just yeah. this year, May? Yes. Wow. It seems like forever ago, but also like last week. Yes. <laughs> Time has no meaning. Time has no meaning anymore. Uh, so, contrary to our tangenty start to the beginning of this episode, this is going to be a fast-paced, many questions episode. So... It is the quickfire episode, after the success of uh, the one from last season. And we're not filming this one, though, because we're not in a fancy hotel. Yeah, and we are not looking great, sir. <laughs> Well, speak for yourself. Wow. So... <laughs> so before we dive into the main list of questions, in the spirit of other places that do very, very quick fire questions, I have prepared a few little things that okay. I'm going to rapidly ask you in succession, and I want the very first answer that pops to your head. Okay. Are you ready to do this? I am ready to do this. Okay, let's go. Favourite space film? Uh... <laughs> Wrath of Khan. Wow. Favourite planet in the solar system? Uranus. Favourite moon in the solar system? Um, Enceladus. Favourite constellation in the sky? Orion. Favourite astro-based memory? Seeing uh, the total solar eclipse in the US. And your favourite nebula? Is the Orion Nebula. Why? It's so pretty. Oh, okay. Right. You can take your time a little bit with the next few questions, okay? Good, because the moment you ask any single one of them, I'm just like, I never heard of a planet, of a movie set in space, of a constellation before in my life. Take too much uh, stress. Let's start with something easier. <laughs> okay. I don't know if we've got any easy questions, but this is the first proper question, okay? If you were able to, without being crushed, hold a black hole, say if it were the size of a penny or a tennis ball, how far away would the event horizon be? And that comes from Mark Townsend or a bit of a gay on Twitter. Good question. Yes, uh, let's start by giving uh, some definitions first. So the event horizon is the, let's say, the surface, the ultimate surface of a black hole, is what separates the black hole from the rest of the universe. So it's like the outside, it's like the shape of a ball, effectively, I guess. It's it's the outside. The it shape. is the outside. Um, the idea, at least mathematically, uh, we think that a singularity, so a point of infinite density where our physics break, cannot be, it cannot exist without an event horizon. And it's quite interesting because there is this idea that there are no naked singularities in the universe. So you As can... As in something without an edge. Without, without an, an event, event horizon. horizon. Right. You cannot just encounter the singularity like that uh, going around. So the event horizon is where the... is the edge of the black hole. So 
with uh, the question from Mark, uh, we have two way of interpreting it. So if we want to, if we want to hold a black hole, I, w I assume this would be from the position of someone who is right in the very middle of the black hole. Surely, no. Oh no, no! In the very middle of the black hole, you're being already turning to plasma. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming that the the question is if you're like outside the black hole. Uh, to be honest, uh, based based on the size, uh, let me let me answer the question as I think, and then if Mark is uh, not happy about it, they can ask me follow ups. So, a black hole with the mass of a penny or the mass of a tennis ball, the size will be smaller than an atom because the singularity it's uh, something so dense uh, that makes uh, things very small. Okay. Okay. So. If you wanted something that you can lift, like a penny or tennis ball, it would be the size of an atom. Wow. Here we are uh, going with the assumption that you're not getting crushed, and from a black hole that size, you wouldn't get crushed. But what if instead we take the question as the size of a penny or a tennis ball, and we consider a black hole the size of a penny, or a black hole the size of a tennis ball. So a regular UK penny is about two centimeters, and so that would be equivalent. So a black hole's two centimeter across. So this is like instead of instead of it being like the size of an atom, if it was the size of a penny. Uh, now we're talking about uh, yeah, yeah, not uh, about the mass of a penny. We're talking about the physical size. Uh -huh. So is as big as a penny. Okay. A black hole that size would weigh two point twenty five times the Earth. Shocked faces. Yeah, That's... shocked faces all around. Wow. Again, because so, like this... just so I can get a picture of this in my head, like something that would weigh two point do you say two point two five? Yeah. Like the visible air quotes event horizon would be like the size of like a penny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And if you're thinking of a tennis ball, that uh it's around six centimeters and a bit, so uh, scale uh, in the same way, and you will have something that is around 7.6 Earths, which is roughly half the size of Uranus. <coughs> okay. Yeah. But this thing, this is one of the fascinating things, is the fact that even some of the big supermassive black holes are not that uh, large in physical size. Cool. Okay. Should we zoom on to the next question? Absolutely. This question comes from Gav. What is the largest object in the universe that we are aware of? And before you answer, I think I would like to try and guess this one. Okay. Because I remember years ago, I had to make a video about black holes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to say the largest object in the universe is a black hole that I want to call something like M17 or something like that. I remember it sounded like a motorway. Uh, and basically, the diameter of this black hole stretched something like, I don't know, like a million solar dis like a million Earth-Neptune distances. Uh, you're mixing a few things. A million uh, Earth-Neptune uh, distances is still is way bigger, I think, than any supermassive black holes. What you're thinking of is M87. Yes. 
No, wait, that's the one that they photographed. Yes. No, I wasn't thinking of that one. You weren't I was thinking of one that's like way, 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 way bigger. Okay. So usually the M classification is for um, Galaxy in the Messier catalog. Oh, I just thought it meant massive. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or motorway. No, 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 no. It's uh, um, from that catalog. So it's galaxies that we are... uh, quite uh, aware of. I think it was done in the 19th century. I can't remember. But I think to answer this question from Gav, thank you, Gav, for the question, we need to go a little bit philosophical on what do we define as an object? I mean, I would instinctively say something physical that we can clearly see the edges of and so we can see that it is separate from something else. Mm-hmm. But... That is actually a very good definition. Good, thank but you. Give me the but. But. You always want the but. So, I know in space, collections of, ob- collections of things, like collections of stars, collections of uh, galaxies, can also be seen as a single object. It's like many parts of the same thing. Very good. So... The, uh, the argument that we might make is that a book is an object because it's separate from other things. But okay? a library is also an object. We can argue that, but <laughs> you say, oh, but the book is there, is physical. But you're considering the way that we put it together is simply electromagnetic forces that keep the atoms in the pages together and the glue that keeps everything attached, etc. So that is your object. We are not used to considering objects with gravity in everyday stuff because gravity is much, much weaker. But you're right, I would consider a galaxy, a solar system, a star system, an object. On the assumption that we consider any collection bound by gravity an object, the largest known object in the universe is called the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall. Catchy. That's a really catchy name. Well, <laughs> it is a galactic filament. It's a huge galactic filament, a huge cluster of galaxies bound together by gravity. Astronomers have estimated that is 10 billion light years across. 10 million? 10 billion. What? Yeah. But... It is the biggest object in the universe. I mean, that's like how... Okay, I'm going into the territory of my mind being broken by the presumed size of the universe again, mm-hmm. but isn't the universe itself like 40 billion light years across? I mean, well, no, that's the visible universe? No, uh, I'm confused because I like, isn't the universe, air quotes, supposed to be infinite, but we know it has like, because of expansion, it's like 40 billion light years across? But- can you, can I yeah, say something instead of uh, you just confusing uh, our listeners? Yes. All right. So the universe could be infinite. Um, there are some data that uh, put that down as a possibility, but uh, most of the time we just focus on the visible universe. Okay. From the furthest we can see into the universe, this universe has been expanding for 13.8 billion years. And that expansion means that today, that same universe is about 46 billion light years across. Okay, okay. So this 
this huge is, structure is a quarter the size of the visible universe. Yeah. That's in one direction. just mind blow. I can't yeah. even comprehend. Like yeah. I can barely comprehend like <laughs> I can barely comprehend like the size of like this apparent infinite universe, but something that's ten billion light years across, something that takes ten billion years at the speed of light to cross from one side to the other. And it's just a collection of galaxies. Yeah. What is stopping it at that? Why does it not include more things? Simply the way the universe uh, uh, is evolving. And how do we know that all of those galaxies within this object are bound by the same force? I mean, the same bit of force, I would guess. Yes. Uh, you can measure um, their proper motion. So the universe is expanding, and so we see all the galaxy ah. proceedings from us uh, simply because of the fact that the universe is expanding at every point in every direction. So every okay. uh, apart, the very close stuff seems to be moving away from us. But uh, once you work out uh, the distance of a galaxy, you can also measure how it's moving. Okay. And that allows to work out uh, the dynamics, and all of this seems to be... Uh, moving together. So it's, yeah, it's like you're looking at a group of things and some things are expanding in one direction, but then there's like an enormous amount of things in the visible universe all sort of moving in the same direction. Yeah. We sort of like they are tied together effectively. And we talked before, uh, we see that uh, the distribution of uh, matter in the universe uh, is uh, in this uh, so-called cosmic web because it looks like a big strand of filaments with uh, large nodes uh, and big voids in between and that again it's just uh, due to the law of cosmologies but if uh, gav is not happy with like oh i really don't consider a group a as group, one thing yeah a group of as one thing even a galaxy wouldn't consider an object because it's just stars and planets and gas etc okay how one physical single object, uh, then the biggest object is uh, the supermassive black hole Ton 618, which is 18.2 uh, billion light years from Earth, and has uh, is the most massive black holes ever found with a mass of 66 billion solar masses. So it's 66 billion times the mass of our sun. I think this might have been what I was referring to. Awesome. I think it might have been. So do I get a point for that, if I was technically correct? Uh, you get a point. Uh, I even was going to say it was, it, even if it wasn't. So. It could be. If there are, uh, we have uh, discovered some really, really big uh, uh, supermassive black holes. Okay. So it could be another one. And this is the heaviest. The physical size of uh, Ton 618, the short shield radius that we discussed earlier, is uh, 1300 AU, which, and that is 390 billion kilometers in diameter, or about 40 times the distance between Neptune and the Sun. That's not bad, huh? I don't like that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know it's... I don't like it. It's too big. Yeah, I know. Sometimes it just like uh, you really feel minuscule in the. Not in even, the not even that. I just, I just, it. It shouldn't be too no, big. It just shouldn't be as big. The things shouldn't yeah. be 
Right, well, I'm going to hop on to the next question, which comes from James Bassanville on Instagram. How many recorded planets are there in the galaxy? Well, there are always uh, new getting discovered every day, uh, but at the moment there are around 4,500 confirmed exoplanets, Oh, with almost 8,000 uh, candidate exoplanets, and as I said, many, 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 many more to be discovered. So it's potentially around so far at the moment that we know of 12,000 planets slash, well, exoplanets Yeah, if in the Milky Way. That seems like a relatively quite small number. Well, this is the thing that we have seen. Uh, statistically, we expect to be 100 billion exoplanets in the Milky Way. Just as many planets as there are stars. If not more. If not more. Like, wow. Not every, not every star has a planet, but uh, given that uh, some stars have multiple planets... Uh, what, uh, is, what is like the average? Is it, is it more common than not for a star to have a planet? We think so. Okay, given that cool. there are a lot more stars, there are smaller, and uh, the smaller stars tend to have... Uh, uh, they're more likely to have planets, but still a lot, it's interesting, there are still some major biases uh, when it comes to planets because of how we are detecting them. And uh, some of our approaches favor uh, planets that are closer to their star, that are bigger, and so we might have uh, some uh, bias in our planet's population. like. We haven't found a star system like the solar system yet that has uh, these four rocky planets inside and in the interior and then uh, four gas giants uh, at the back, uh, simply because uh, it would take us so long to observe something like uh, Neptune. So the way we're looking for exoplanets, most often not, but it's possible to find stuff that is further out. But most often than not, uh, we are focusing on things that are close, and the bigger the better. So, talking about planets, this leads to a very nice question from Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing not the group. What is the oldest known planet? What does it tell us about Earth? Oh, so, uh, the oldest known planet is called PSR B1620. Dash 26b. Why do you have... Why do you know things like this? It's exciting. Okay, PSR... Why do they have such crap names? It's a crap name because uh, you don't know. The moment I... <laughs> no, like, the uh, the number and the code and number is just like, oh, this is boring. And it's just for classification. But the PSR is very exciting, actually. Because stands for... Pulsar. But that's a star. That's not a planet. That's that's the type of star. What kind of star? A neutrino. No. A very fast no. rotating star. Yes, which is not called a neutrino. Neutrino is a fundamental particle. It's called a... Neutron star. Neutron star, correct. Is a very fast rotating neutron star that emits a pulse of radiations. Hence, pulsar. This is exciting. There is a planet around a pulsar. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's what it's named after. Yeah. Uh, the B at the end is uh, just uh, the thing that lets people recognize uh, that uh, it's planet. 
It's also called Methuselah and the Genesis planet. <gasps> okay, that's very Doctor Who. Okay. And also a bit Star Trek. And it's 12.7 billion years old. That but it's four times as old as there been life on our planet. I want to stress that for you. That is four times as old as there been life on our planet. So that's the oldest known planet. Mm-hmm. Is there anything to imply that there could be older ones? And part B of this question, if it can be older, what is the earliest a planet could have formed after the Big Bang? 14 billion years ago? 13.8, but yeah. Okay. 14 is, yeah. A, is a good uh, approximation. Um, so... Just a general ballpark number. As we've seen in episode 9 about the chemistry of stars and planets, you need to have stars producing enough of the heavier elements for planets to form. So we expect the first stars, the one that were made almost exclusively of hydrogen and helium, to have died in the first, uh, probably, let's go with the first uh, three to five hundred million years uh, after the Big Bang. This is about a billion years after the Big Bang, so you need uh, stars during that time to go supernova, create elements, etc. I don't think that we can push uh, the formation of planets much earlier. Maybe a few hundred million years, but it's very much dependent on when the first stars were born, uh, when the second generation uh, of stars uh, began shining, etc. And at the moment, we are not sure of the exact date. It's We have ranges. So I think uh, that uh, Dussala is one of the oldest planet in the galaxy. I'm, I would be surprised that if we find uh, a huge amount or a huge proportion of planets uh, that are older than that. But the fact that there are there is a planet that was uh, uh, there, and this is a Jovian-sized planet, so gas, uh, uh, very unlike Earth. But the fact that there is a planet like that... Uh, really tells you that uh, planet formation uh, seems to be something that is standard in the universe, uh, something that uh, happens uh, um, just as easily as star formation. And that, I think, it tells quite a bit about what we can expect about life elsewhere in the universe. Awesome. Cool. Last question. Last question. You ready? I am ready. This question comes from Gonswitter on Twitter, who asks, what would a zero-gravity cocktail bar look like and how would it work? How would you mix drinks? How would you serve them? Would some drinks not mix in zero-G? Would you get drunk quicker or slower? And what would hangovers be like? Wow, well, that is a lot of questions in one, and it's uh, 
something that I would love to explore, like uh, if you have seen the video part uh, of the Astroholic, uh, I love making cocktails uh, and uh, so it's always good fun mixing cocktails and astronomy. Uh, let's start by saying that uh, the relationship between alcohol and space is a little bit complicated. For example, it's uh, illegal to have alcohol on board of the ISS. Oh. Has anyone ever snuck any on board? Uh, not that we know of, <laughs> but uh, there is, uh, like, that is the rule. No alcohol on the ISS, also because it's a $100 billion uh, lab. And, yeah, I can't imagine it'd be the smartest move in case. But astronauts and cosmonauts uh, have uh, had the occasional uh, drink. Uh, for example, Buzz Aldrin on the moon, he had some wine. He was celebrating the Holy Communion. And uh, uh, he had a drink on the moon. He had a drink on the How moon. How did he do that? He was celebrating In, within the craft. Um, yeah. Okay. So he had uh, some wine. He had uh, the Eucharist and just had uh, a little mass on the moon. Russian were a lot more fun. I think on the mirror and uh, in a uh, uh, few previous mission, uh, astronauts were cosmonauts, not astronauts, were given. Uh, uh, cognac, because it was believed that it was good for them, and that's amazing. <laughs> uh, apparently, the U.S. had some fortified wine uh, in Skylab, which was uh, the first uh, U.S. Uh, uh, space station, and apparently made the astronaut very sick. Oh no! Because it was didn't smell really good. Oh. Yeah. Um, so there is all of that, uh, but, and that is the sort of background on uh, alcohol and space. So, what would Angover be like? I think, uh, I think that would be interesting. I don't have an answer for that, uh, but uh, in space, you get used to, uh, well, ignoring uh, your uh, lack of sense of balance. Uh, and that is very similar, like being drunk in some ways. So maybe, well, you cannot fall over. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> you can fall around. You can fall around, but not fall over. Uh, throwing up would not be oh, fun. Oh no, no. Uh, headaches. You tend to have more, like, uh, more blood going towards your head because of lack of gravity. So maybe headaches are worse, uh, but I don't have enough uh, data to answer that question. Well, um, would you get drunk quicker or slower? I think it would be the same rate as Earth. Um, even the idea that we get uh, drunk more quickly on planes, uh, I think has been disproven. So I think it's just like... Uh, oh, okay. Physiologically, uh, is just uh, the same process. Uh, now, let's talk about uh, this zero-gravity cocktail bar, because I think that is the most interesting thing, is the fact that in zero-gravity you um, don't have the same uh, approach as uh, how you mix liquids. So you can mix them, you can shake them, but I think you can do something a lot more creative. Uh, first of all, um, it would be fun to have uh, two liquids that are immiscible, uh, immiscible means that you cannot mix them. Uh, think of uh, uh, water oil and oil. oil. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't know. I cannot think of any single alcohol and cocktail mix that would do that simply because uh, uh, alcohol is mostly water-based but maybe something can be created and um, you could create a cocktail that had a little bubble of uh, something surrounded by another liquid but if the little bubble um, that can only come with a miscible and if you shake it what you could be doing given that that uh, uh, sort of water um, or any other water-based, mostly water thing, uh, uh, liquid in space, uh, you would have like a little sphere and you could use, uh, uh, instead of having your mixology kit, instead of having a shaker, you could use a syringe and you could fill that sphere with different oh, liquid. Oh, cool. Like, on Earth, if you want to do a layer cocktail, you rely on gravity. Yeah. You pour the liquids in reverse order of density or sugar content. So the pure alcohol first and then um, the other mixer until you get the one that is um, sugaring. So with this layering, you cannot do it in space because you don't have the gravity. So what you can could potentially do is instead you have, instead of layers, you have globules so that you slowly uh, drink but that cocktail would be very separated so I think it would be fun um, to have uh, three different uh, mixtures so that uh, I don't know you have uh, outside you want something quite transparent and so you go for a vodka and lemonade and inside maybe you mix uh, blue curacao with uh, some white rum Ooh. And uh, so you have a white and blue inside, or I don't know, let's throw in some absinthe for a green hue, or uh, you can even throw in some grenadine at the very center. And so as you slowly uh, put your straw and suck layers after layer, you have different colors. So I think that could be that my be awesome. zero gravity cocktail. And if I ever get to space, I will at least try to pitch uh, doing that. Uh, as a zero gravity mocktail. Yes, that would be incredible. That brings us to the end of the episode and the end of this season. Yes, uh, you'll hear from us again at Christmas. Christmas is always a time for us to show up again and then I guess uh, we'll hear each other next year. Brilliant, see you soon. Are you tired of listening to the same playlists over and over again? Are you ready for something new? Discover the latest music from LGBTQIA musicians on Homo Ground. There's so much music ready for you to devour, like this song by Carl X. What are you waiting for? Visit homoground.com or search Homo Ground on your favorite podcast app. Same ground, different sound, you're on Homo Ground.